Welcome to Screen Talking, Wire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by our editor at large, Ann Thompson, NLA. And, and we got some big news in the film festival world this week. Actually, a couple big stories, but let's start with one that I think really sent uh, a lot of people in the industry uh, a, an interesting message about how much the fall seems to be changing which is this, this changing of the guard at the AFI Film Festival with Jacqueline Langa, who's been the artistic director at this festival for a number of years, leaving. What does that say about the kind of open question of, at least in, on the West Coast, of the, of the, the most prominent uh, L.A. film festival? Well, it is mystifying that Bob Ghazali, the head of the AFI, would replace the the director of a very successful world class you know widely respected and well regarded film festival and in LA that has not been something that comes easily this is finally we have a good festival that everybody likes and everybody wants to go to in November it's getting a lot of big Oscar contenders debuting there it's getting world-class filmmakers from all over the world she has the sense and her programming team had to book the right movies, you know, and, and, you know, you know, betting on Asghar Farhadi early on, Sebastian Lalo early on, you know, bringing in people like Almodovar and, and David Lynch to be guest directors. And, and why would, why would Bob Ghazali want to replace her at exactly the moment when the Los Angeles Film Festival is coming up to threaten AFI? And, it, you know, we, we've talked about this and we never thought AFI was really being threatened. We thought they were clearly the dominant festival. But now, um, basically, he's, uh, Ghazali's merging uh, for various streamlining internal organizational reasons. His two festivals, which are LA Fe- the LA Film Festival, AFI Fest, and then the one in D.C., which is AFI Docs. And he's taking Michael Lumpkin, who's the head of AFI Docs, who used to be at the uh, IDA, and making him in charge of both festivals and putting the top programmer under Jacqueline uh, in charge of both festivals, uh, Lane Kneedler. What do you think of this, Eric? Well, I think it's it's all kind of fascinating because one of the things that, that we don't really know is just how much there was some kind of internal struggle. I mean, your story on this was very good, and there was some good, good voices on, on from both sides in terms of what seems to have happened here with a head programmer who didn't want to sort of absorb the responsibilities of multiple festivals. Now, do we know if there was something that was off in terms of chemistry or anything like that? I don't know. Well, she's Bottom, been there for eight that, years. Yeah, it's really hard to say. My sense is that it's really about resources. But, but and, the thing and, is... And she would have stayed if it was going to work for her. But the thing is, you cited some of these, these you know, notable filmmakers who have been there who deserve to get the L.A. scene to acknowledge their work, like a Sebastian Lelio or Oscar Farhadi, but what I really noticed was the way in which, I mean, you and I were on a uh, jury together at that festival, and I, and I was impressed with the programming as a whole. The it was extraordinary. It was, it was people we'd never heard of, and but, they were but, all good. But honestly, it, it really got on my radar as a shift that year that there were, within a matter of a couple of days, you had a, a Selma still wet from the lab and then American Sniper 
within a matter of days, and that was really impressive. As a matter of fact, they both played the same night. Yeah, it was exactly. It was the same night. They were sort of, Selma was sort of was sort of unclear until the very last minute. Yeah, no, they, was, they, and that they, was really it's something. It's it, 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 to to find that balance between a certain quality of international cinema and to contribute new films to the fall season conversation. People don't realize how difficult it is to get to that point, especially in such a competitive landscape. So that one thing they hard. lost last year was the uh, closing night movie, and this was I, I, I realized as I was reporting this that that was something that cost them money in the end. I mean, you have a big sponsor for closing night. Um, it was the um, it was the Kevin Spacey yeah. movie. Well, that, that wasn't was, their uh, fault. I mean, no, you know, that wasn't any program. But fault. but the numbers weren't in their favor, and so it, I think I think it's always been a bit of a numbers game for Bob Ghazali, just trying to make this work with the sponsors and the uh, all the different uh, levels. I mean, it's a lot to put on a film festival and to put on two in one in one year. Um, so I feel for him in that regard. But losing her was was not necessarily the the ideal thing. Yeah, and it it puts a really valuable player a very well liked player on the market so it's 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 very it'll be interesting to see what her next move is too and the optics are not good you opt, lose of one of the only uh uh festival major festival directors of color and you replace her effectively <laughs> with two white men you know not yeah, to put we'll, two, we'll see how that it. that narrative evolves i, I want to go back to the la film festival of it all because i think that is what's really interesting is, like you said, when the LA Film Festival moved up, people were sort of like, oh, you know, there's no way that that's going to make a difference because AFI Fest there is there. But it's not like LAFF had anything to lose because it wasn't, it was sort of struggling being earlier in the summer anyway. Now I'm, I'm sort of curious to see how studios, let's say, for the award season conversation might evaluate their options. I mean, does this make AFI maybe potentially less attractive because it seems like they don't really know what they're up to, whereas LAFF is sort of bringing these resources into the fall. I don't know. It seems like there must be some interesting competition going on behind closed doors now, and uh, it's kind of hard to tell who's, who's got the upper hand in that regard. I would say that the AFI has one advantage, which is that it's later. And in a way, what it has always been able to do is capitalize on the films that finish late. Right. So that's that's one aspect of its place in the calendar. Um, the LAFF, as you say, is much less established at this point, And its director is probably less established uh, than Lane Needler. You know, I mean, he's he's probably more experienced and, and more well connected uh, than she is. So we'll see. Yeah, it's, it it should be a, a fascinating to track how this all comes together, especially since now there's no festival in L, big festival in LA in the summer. I mean, I guess you have Next Fest, but you don't with without LAFF in June. That actually you know. opens uh, this week. I'm going to go down there and finally catch up with. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry to bother you, which I didn't see at Sundance, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh yeah, and that's playing in New York too, actually, in a week at our BAM Cinema Fest. That movie's really making the rounds for the summertime, so it's kind of cool that it's back, getting back into the conversation. I can't wait to hear what you think about that one. Um, so last night there was also an event, In there were a couple of events. There was one thing where um, the there had been uh, well, it was the Women in Film Crystal Awards last night, and speaking uh, of diversity, 
Indeed. So Frances McDormand uh, gave some backstory on how she came up with the uh, inclusion riders and she reiterated how important it is to, to make everything have parity in, in our industry and how difficult it's going to be. And then um, Brie Larson also got up and spoke and, and she, she really laid down the gauntlet on the whole question of critics because there had been a, 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 a statistical survey about how few women critics there are, uh, you know, really small percentage. And uh, Brie wants that to change. Uh, what do you think of that, Eric? Well, it's, it's, this has been something that I've thought a lot about over the years. I mean, as you know, I, I helped start a workshop for critics, uh, first in Locarno and then in New York Film Festival and then at Sundance called the Critics Academy Initiative. And at Sundance, it was the Roger Ebert Fellowship that was exclusively about trying to push more younger critics into the marketplace. And very quickly, it was clear that the, the a big part of this had to be the diversification of the field because it just felt like not just in terms of people of color, but especially just for women and for, for people who may not have the economic means to get to film festivals, it felt like that this was creating a very narrow perception of the movies at major film festivals. And so little by little, I think there has been this growing awareness, much as there has been throughout the industry of, of a deficiency of underrepresented voices. So we, we've known for a while that festivals have been struggling with this. If you were at Sundance this year and you'd gone to Sundance before, you knew that there were more diverse films on display in prominent places, specifically the U.S. competition, but most of the press was a bunch of white people, and no matter how much those people are going to be open to those works, it does have a direct effect on the way uh, these films are covered, and that's a missed opportunity. And I think in Toronto, which is a much bigger festival, very international and so forth, it's even more so of, of an issue. And so it's it's interesting the way that uh, they greenlit the announcement of this as, as, a, as one piece of Brie Larson's speech. But I think it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's going to be a challenge to figure out, you know, exactly who, uh, you know, what, what constitutes an underrepresented journalist. They're saying it's women and people of color, but from what kinds of outlets and, and how they weld influence, because... You could have well. That's the thing. I mean, they could be. There could be a lot of people. I, mean, I don't think this is necessarily entirely the case, but there could be people from really small outlets or people who don't even have regular outlets who are freelancers, and 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 they should be given an opportunity. But the impact that they'll have is not necessarily as great. That's well, I think that's it it's an interesting question though because it's if they're giving express. So so now on your your application for the Toronto Film Festival as a journalist, you will have a question that wasn't there before. You'll have two questions, actually. One about your gender and one about how you self-identify. You don't have wow. to answer that. But by virtue of answering how you self-identify, you may be having an impact on the outcome of your accreditation. Mm. And what Toronto is saying is that they will actually be giving express passes to this 20% increase of, of, of quote-unquote underrepresented journalists. So wow. there, there is a question there of, you know, does that create an incentive for, for people to, to want to self-identify. I mean, obviously, if you lied about it and somebody found out, that would be pretty bad. But I think it's going to create some really... Is it only racial or is it also... Women and people of color. Identity. Women and people of color. So women, women are a part of this equation too. Um, so, so I think that what's going to be 
fascinating to watch is how uncomfortable the conversation is going to get about this because there are people who are going to be upset or frustrated or feel like the dialogue is not doing what it's needed to do. But I think this is a rip off the bandaid moment, essentially, in which it needs to be a little bit uncomfortable. You know, when I was at Art House Convergence this year, there were a lot of conversations about, you know, how the art house exhibition field is too white and that can have an impact on independent art house programming and that they just there was this broader acknowledgement that somebody was saying we we have to have conversations that make us feel uncomfortable in order to work through this i agree with that 100 percent. and i think that's what's happening here essentially you know and and it's also notable i mean it seems that there is also a personal element for brie larson in in this because she directed a film last year that uh hasn't been released and i think a lot of times you see filmmakers who go through a certain experience where they put a lot into making a movie and they're just And there's no ripple in the pond. Yeah, I know. And, it really so, disappeared. And, and the other the other thing that's interesting is to see some of the blowback on Twitter because what Bree said was that she didn't need um she's it's been reported as 40-year-olds or 70-year-olds. I'm not sure what she actually <laughs> said. But, could be both. Um, I, she doesn't need white 40-year-olds or men of a certain age telling her what to think about what's wrong with Wrinkle in Time. That was the film she used specifically. And you could see the men from Glenn Kenny to whoever rippling along on, on uh, Twitter saying, uh, wait, you know, because it's almost like she's saying, I don't want to hear from that entire segment of the population. And the brutal truth is, is a lot of our best critics are white men. Uh, there are many wonderful women who are great critics, but you don't want to just suddenly say, if he were alive, if he were alive, 70-year-old Richard Cor- Corliss, I don't want to hear what he thinks. Is that really what we're doing here? Well, I, again, I mean, this goes back to what I'm saying. The, the, these are exactly the kinds of things. People are going to say things and other people are going to offended, and we have to talk through it. I mean, I could offend just as many people if I were to say some of my favorite film critics are women, from Pauline Kale to Ruby Rich or whatever, but you know there there is something indeed to that, right? I mean, I I think that there it, basically our culture tends to operate in binaries. It's either you know I want to hear from this person or I don't want to hear from that person, and I think there's a happy medium here that's really hard to express because, quite frankly, it doesn't have to matter. But as a philosophical idea it it does matter because if a movie is exclusively being processed by white men then with time you can see direct results on that absolutely i've been watching this for 30 years i've watched you know incredible movies directed by women about women be dismissed by the largely male press corps, either because they were romantic comedies and therefore weren't really to be taken seriously, or they were being dismissed as chick flicks or whatever. I mean, but the danger that I see that worries me just a little bit is is that we don't want to see um, each of us only listening to people who are just like us, even if that means women only listening to women of, or, or African-Americans only listening to African-Americans. Absolutely. 
Yeah. We don't want that. We yeah. want everybody to be listening to everybody. And the weird thing about the the internet and the world that the, the social media world and and a lot of it is that it feels like it's becoming narrower silos. Right. That the that the mass audience is getting smaller by the minute in terms of the little uh, niches that everybody occupies. And we get more and more into this kind of echo chamber that's really frustrating because are you really solving a problem if you have great you know. Fil women filmmakers, for example, and and, and the all the men in the, who could possibly cover them feel that this is not something that they, that the culture allows them to comment on. When in fact, if it's a great movie, it's a great movie and it should be talked about in that broader sense. I was just on a panel last weekend at the Seattle International Film Festival that was exclusively about this, about diversity across film festivals and the challenges that they face and we didn't have anybody from Toronto or Sundance we had James Faust from Dallas Film Festival, David Magda who's a publicist but runs the South Asian Film Festival in LA and uh, it was really interesting to hear them talk about it because what they were talking about was more about the the programming challenges of ensuring that you're looking at a diverse set of films from the get-go and then you know from there ensuring that you're choosing films of quality being sort of the biggest challenge at hand. Now, what we're seeing is that I think a lot of festivals have been taking that step and are now seeing that by virtue of not having these movies processed the way they need to, to be processed, something is missing. So there is evidence that you know having better representation can actually yield uh, a capacity to recognize good films. And I think the AFI Fest is a perfect example of that. Jacqueline Leonga opened with Mudbound, even, it, even though it had shown at That's so many point. different festivals. She went with Mudbound and made a stake, you know, put her, put her stake in, into in the ground there. And I think that her very diverse group of programmers have had a, a, a terrific uh, result. Um, very yeah. diverse programming, um, more than most. But um, uh, we'll see if that continues. Basically, yeah, it's a, it's a open question. And the Mudbound one is actually a really good example because it's like it, it already played big at Sundance months earlier. It was also playing at New York Film Festival, but there there is an argument to be made that by pushing that into AFI, it definitely helped that movie get the visibility it needed when it was being perceived as having a, you know, it was not the easiest sell and it got some Oscar nominations and so forth. So, you know, there is some there is some value in that. Well, let's talk about a movie that certainly wrestles with uh, really important issues for the future <laughs> of mankind. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about Jurassic World, which is, you know, a supremely important movie for all of these issues to be explored. Although I will I say, say this. Uh, I'm sorry. I was, I was just gonna say I had fun going to the premiere, which <laughs> which was mounted at Disney Hall downtown on a big scale, lavish studio premiere so it's every once in a while the studios have a big enough movie that they can afford to to actually uh cough cough up some dough and and give us all a good time yeah well joking aside there there it is a movie that is obviously eager to please and also uh ready made for being scrutinized in terms of its gender politics which it's something that came up before with Bryce Dallas Howard in, in her heels running around with the T-Rex behind her. And the heels come back, but she's a more, somewhat more interesting character this time around. I didn't 
Love they the addressed, movie. They addressed it. And they it, tried. It was, it was okay. It was better, you know. It isn't about her, and it isn't about Chris Pratt. It's really about these dinosaurs, and there's this extraordinary scene where they're running away from the exploding volcano, and you have this enormous array of running dinosaurs of all different scales, all different detail. I mean, just for someone who is a student of visual effects, if you'll forgive me, it was an amazing scene. No judgment. Uh, I mean, I think really was, you know, good. so we, if you've seen the trailer. So J.A. Bayona is yeah. what I was interested in. Yeah. I wasn't so interested in the characters. Totally. I mean, I think what's, you hear with these Marvel movies, how sometimes they bring in intelligent talents and then Marvel kind of fills in the action, and then they do the character stuff. I feel like it was the other way around. It's almost like the screenplay for this movie is not great. The situation is ludicrous. But there are some really good sequences where you can feel the hand of an engaged director. The one you're talking about, everyone who's seen the trailer knows it's coming, but it doesn't totally prepare you for an actual really intense long take underwater inside the confines of this basically sinking... Uh, That's a vessel. great sequence. Yeah, yes. I, I mean that caught me off guard because That's I was at the end. Of... That's at the end of this because they're yeah. they're rolling along in this thing and then they go off a cliff. Yeah, I mean the <laughs> Sorry. kids are rolling Spoiler. along. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I won't, we won't say how that scene ends, so it's not totally. Uh, so, but I think a, what was great stuff. But I it's thought the very it was... beginning with that enormous uh, jaw coming up. There's a whole great. Yeah, I thought that was ridiculous. But where there's a monster under the water and then they're being rescued by helicopter and there's all the you know one thing leads to another thing and then at the end you have this extraordinary uh coup de grace it's there's some great stuff like that and i recommend the movie just for that there's also a great scene i think that's very bayona if you remember if any of you saw monster calls which probably most of you didn't and i loved that movie um and it was one of those things that just fell between the cracks. It wasn't a children's movie and it wasn't an adult movie and it somehow got written off. But there's a scene where the little girl, I mean, he kind of terrorizes this poor little girl and she's tower, she's cowering in her bed while this horrible new uh, dinosaur that they've created from genetics is is tracking her and 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 you see the silhouette you know it's beautifully done yeah I, I i would not go quite up to the level of saying that i recommend this movie to people when there's so much interesting stuff out right now but i would say that if you are a fan of biona's films from a trivia standpoint it does feel like you say like a consolidation of aspects of all of his films, including The Orphanage, because that's this really great kind of creepy, atmospheric ghost story exactly. in this yeah. gothic mansion. And the second half of the movie, it's so, for, for a franchise that's usually taking place on a sprawling island, it's kind of crazy that the second half of this movie is all set in a house. It's, it's literally like a giant house with dinosaurs run amok, run amok like gremlin style. So there is, there is something to that. Um, I don't know. I liked Incredibles 2 a little bit more. I know you still need to catch up on that I'm one. I'm so upset <laughs> that I haven't seen that. It's getting rave reviews. and It's, it's not quite on the level you, of the first, but it's, it's pretty good. If you'll wait until next week, yeah. we can talk about well, it then. Well, we, we can totally come back to it. I mean, we know it's going to stay in the conversation, but you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting season. I mean, we, we've talked before about some of the, the movies that are, that are playing really well that are out right now, whether it's 
first reformed or uh, hereditary, hereditary, yeah. which which is doing so so well, and it's 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 you have a lot of good options. So if you are somebody who just wants to see a big dumb blockbuster, I suppose that Jurassic World checks those boxes. I'm amazed at how popular this property remains. I mean, when you think about the fact that Jurassic Park, okay, Spielbergian masterpiece. Second one was kind of silly. Third one, nobody really cared for. And then Radio Silence. The way in which Jurassic World broke all these box office records and brought this franchise back so that it's just now an active franchise is is kind of fascinating, especially in contrast to Star Wars, where there's still this real open question of, you know, what's going to happen with Star Wars at Jurassic Park? has more resilience in the market right now. It's not not what I would be expecting to happen. But um, well, I think it gives um, given the fact that the uh, let's let's give ILM a couple of, of big points here. Um, it's really about what the spectacular visual effects people can do. And the very first Jurassic Park was a breakthrough in visual effects uh, where they where Dennis Murin was able to really do something that nobody had ever done before to be able to create a dinosaur at all was impossible before and they did it and so they've just been running with it running with what the possibilities are just as Pixar is in animation which is one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to to incredible so much because they, they just advance the game every time yeah I mean like the t-rex is more a star of Jurassic Park and and the subsequent movies than the people and that says something that's about it. the extent that's to which it. the technology. But then the other the other uh, I mean uh, <laughs> the Star Wars question is is that they may have banked an enormous amount of money on um, on a world on a on a universe that maybe has already been tapped out and yeah. it, there really isn't that much more to be done with it Did you see this um, amazing uh story that came out where, where lucas did an interview with james cameron talking about the the what he would have done with the star wars universe what did he say chapter he had this whole it was somebody picked up on this there was an interview that he did in in a, in a book with james cameron that that actually is the first time uh, we know of that he has publicly said what his next series of stories would be, and so what? It, it's actually it's an AMC series, James Cameron's story of science fiction. Um, but in the, but what he says is that he was going to go from the world that we know of Star Wars into the quote unquote microbiotic world, where there would be these creatures called the Wills, and they feed off the Force. So it's it sounds so wow. ridiculous, but well, that it gives you a sense of, of what a real imagination can. Well, do. that's the thing. It's like he says in the interview, the fans would have hated it, but that that's what I I keep going back to this. I don't love the Lucas prequels by any measure, but he did whatever the hell he wanted with that franchise, and he took it in unexpected directions, and he still would have done that. Whereas, Even if it was Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, right. I mean, and I don't know if he swore him off or whatever, but I mean, the point is. You know, and, and some somebody wrote an interesting piece about this this thing where they were basically like, what he was going to do with these movies, if you look at the idea, is he's basically saying he was going to create a scientific phenomenon to explain the Force so that it really would be hard sci-fi and everything that people do with their Force powers actually is some sort of a, you know, chemical reaction or something like that. And that is kind of cool. I mean, he was really thinking it through and trying to surprise people, whereas, you know, what we're getting right now feels like they're just sort of mining this 
thing that's kind of gotten dry. Um, exactly. So that's it is. Exactly it is notable right. that we had a, a a blockbuster directed by Ron Howard, followed by a blockbuster starring his daughter Bryce Dallas Howard. One is produced <laughs> by Kathleen Kennedy. The other is produced by Frank Marshall. I think we get a real sense of the kind of active dynasty just by looking at the calendar. You know. Yeah, so you're not wrong. Um, and as far as we can wrap this up very quickly, the other industry news is that they've elected the new Academy Board of Governors that are going to be dealing with this new world um, that we're the new world order. For example, AT&T and the Time Warner merger has been approved. So now we are going to be looking into a new era of consolidation as Disney presumably does by Fox unless Comcast does it first, you know, with a bigger bid. So let let the games begin. But these um, mergers do not necessarily bring uh, great creativity in uh, in content. And I look to uh, some of the upstarts uh, for some of that. We we shall see. We live in constant fear of of giant companies destroying all semblance of creativity. But Somehow it finds a way to survive. So I guess just I'm like just, the dinosaurs, yeah, right? Exactly. Life finds a way. That's why Jurassic World is so popular because people just love that idea. We're rooting for them. <laughs> I we guess. are. I guess we so. like blue. We like blue. Okay. Right, anyway, next week, Eric. Go see Incredibles two, and I'll talk to you about it then. All right.